Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. Today, we're giving you the chance to hear the first episode of a new podcast called Empire. It's hosted by the extraordinary historian William Dalrymple, best-selling historian and uh, actually a friend of mine, and the broadcaster Anita Anand. They're exploring empires throughout history. They start with the extraordinary story of the British in India, which um, both of them have done an enormous amount about. Take it right the way from the East India Company to the Raj, all the way through to Gandhi, independence and partition. Actually, it's amazing how much this fits in with everything that we've already been talking about this week, um, whether it's the endless wars in Afghanistan or the tragic attack on, in fact, William Dalrymple's friend, Salman Rushdie. Anyway, here's episode one, and I hope you really enjoy it as much as I do. Hello and welcome to a brand new podcast called Empire with me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Durrumpel. Now, um, in a funny way, we are both products of empire. Uh, I mean, you could say very simplistically, I'm the Indian in Britain. I mean, of Indian origin, <laughs> born in Essex, but you know, nevertheless, you know what I mean? And I'm, I'm the Brit that's lived most of my adult life in India. Oh, and why are we doing this? Why are we actually doing this? Well, I think it's a very interesting moment to think about empire. Um, it's particularly an interesting moment to think about the British Empire and the British Empire in India, because this is something which I certainly feel got sort of tucked in an attic in 1947. The British moved on. They joined the European community. Um, they liked to feel that they'd left their imperial past behind them. Um, they turned into a different sort of nation, but they certainly forgot about the most important thing the Brits ever did in world history. And certainly my generation going to school would, would learn about the, the Roman Empire. We'd learn yeah. about all sorts of empires, but we wouldn't learn about the British Empire. Well, I mean, you know, I've been to school, dare I say it, a bit more recently than you, but we not not a sniff of it. And it's really strange because, you know, we do the Second World War. We do the commemorations of the First World War. This is something that was as recent or more recent and was an enormous chapter in, in Britain's history. But it's, is it because empire is a dirty word these days? Is that why? Well, I think empire is a very controversial word. And, and that's, in a sense, another reason for doing the uh, the podcast. Because for some people, uh, particularly, I think, a, a generation of Indians and, and other, if you might call them children of empire, who, whose parents came here in the post-war period, they're beginning to ask, why are we here? What's what's happened? And we've had, you know, people like Satnam Sanghera writing Empire Land. We had Indians like Shashi Tharoor writing major bestsellers uh, called Inglorious Empire. Uh, and people are looking at this stuff again. This is this is a period that, that where uh, what was, I think, looked at very romantically through rose-tinted spectacles, through merchant ivory films and so yeah. on, is coming up for critical evaluation. And there's a lot of pushback to that too. It, I mean, it's fascinating because, you know, for a while, this was a vacuum that was only inhabited by 
films. So, you know, in the 70s, you had the glorification of Empire and things like Zulu. You could not imagine Zulu being made today. Uh, and in the 80s, as you say, it was all crinoline and prettiness and sundowners and maharajas. Lovely ladies in uh, under parasols passing over the lawns of the Bangalore Club or playing croquet on uh, similar lawns with smiling maharajas and elephants swishing their tails and lovely cut 1930s suits. Yeah. The idea that Empire was actually there, like all empires obviously are, uh, for the benefit of the colonizer uh, to send money and raw materials back to the home country. It never came into the whole merchant ivory image, which was all puffing steam trains under uh, under glorious uh, night skies with the Taj Mahal's profile rising out of the steam and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, so in effect, what we're trying to do in this in this podcast is we're sort of setting fire to the celluloid and trying to bring you the facts of, of what happened through a number of um, podcasts of different periods. We, we are going to be talking a lot about, you know, the, the Raj and, and India because that is our expertise, Willie and I, myself. But eventually, we, we hope to cover all manner of empires. I'm very keen, quite quickly, to bring in stuff about slavery, about Africa, about the scramble for Africa, but also older empires, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Roman empires, Byzantine empire, all this sort of stuff. Because it seems to me that it covers a great swathe of world history. And explains a lot of politics today. I mean, that's the thing that I find really fascinating, that we don't know it more because it does. Look, we're going to start, though, um, with, with Britain and India. We're going to start with the formation of the East India Company in the 16th century. All the way through the Raj, eventually we're going to take you to independence and the partition of India, which happened 75 years ago this month, by the way. Uh, August 2022 is the 75th anniversary. And, and Willie, the East India Company, I know, has been one of the great themes of your career, hasn't it? I've actually been working on the East India Company for 20 years. And I started in, in 1999, and then this book was uh, the Anarchy was published 2019. And what's been fascinating for me is seeing how this subject, which was right at the edge 20 years ago, has, has moved into the centre of things now for two reasons. One is colonialism has moved to the centre of things. Suddenly the British have woken up to the fact that they had an empire, that a lot of the world is not happy about this, that uh, it isn't a wonderful commonwealth of nations willingly following the, the lead of uh, of our queen and, and our people, but people were conquered uh, looted, asset stripped, shipped across nations against their wills, that many terrible things happen. And the weird thing that the British simply don't know about this, it's not in our history curriculums. We're not taught it at school. The second thing that's happened, of course, is that in the same period, in the last 20 years, we've suddenly been confronted by these massive corporations who now dominate our lives. Companies like Tesla, Google, Facebook, ExxonMobil, mm. other massive corporations that operate in all the countries of the world. Amazon, uh, can cut around the tax laws and other laws of individual nation states and play one state off against each other. And suddenly we're in a situation, as we were with the East India Company 200 years ago, uh, where a corporation is calling the shots and the nation states are on the back foot. Now, as you said, in the story of the East India Company, ultimately the state wins. And in 1858, the East India Company is nationalised and the British state takes over India and you get the Raj. But what is funny is that while the Raj has dominated British perceptions of their empire in India, it only actually lasts 90 years. It's a, it's a, brief a flash in the pan. Flash in the pan of mm. Indian history. And also even a, a flash in the pan in the history of, of British imperialism. Right. It lasts from 1858 until 1947. And this yeah. year we're celebrating the 75th anniversary of Indian independence. So it's almost as long now 
since we independence. We are in front of it as we were as behind, we were behind it. it. How, exactly. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, it, yeah. It's 75 years now. Mm. In 15 years, it'll be 90 years and, and it'll be the same amount of time as Raj. But what is forgotten almost, and this is why for the last 20 years I've been working on this, is that like the, the bit of the iceberg you can't see beneath the water, there precedes the beginning of the Raj in 1858, no less than 250 years when India is ruled from Britain, but not by the British government. So this, I mean, this whole landscape is so broad. And as you say, 250 years broad. Um, but I would like us, if, if you don't mind, William, to start in Wales. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> obviously, in Wales. If you, if Where you, else? If you don't mind. Um, but, but the, that's not, the, uh, that's not the, the, the animal you're talking not, about. <laughs> not, not the mammal, no. Um, I'm talking about a, a place in Wales, Powys Castle. So... This is a fascinating place, Powys Castle. Just tell us, tell us why this is a really good place to start this story. So Powys Castle, from the outside, looks about as English as anywhere could possibly look, although it's actually just over the border from England within Wales. It has Tudor box hedges. It has a wonderful sort of Renaissance doorway in marble. Uh, it has these lovely Elizabethan windows. And it has on the top crenellations. And it'd be hard to think of anything more British than this sort of fantastic structure. It looks like every is, boy's idea of a fort. It's a, exactly. It's it? a perfect yeah. sort of castle yeah. that you know, children yeah. build in sand on, on, the, on, on, the be- on the beach. But within the long gallery at Powys, you enter a completely different world because you walk under a painting into a gallery, a kazana, a treasury of what can only be described as Indian loot. Mm. And loot, of course, is an Indian word, lutna, to plunder. Uh, is a word that enters the English language at this period to describe exactly the sort of objects which are being fill, filling this castle. And what you have is talwas, uh, swords. swords, shields, yeah. Indian gowns, little ivory chessmen, miniatures, and one or two quite in, big objects of, of imperial plunder of, of, of real you know, international importance. There's Siraj Dowler's palanquin left mm. on the battlefield of Plassey. Now, Plassey was the battle which is always said to begin the British conquest of India. It's the first moment that, that, that the Brits score a major victory over an Indian power and take over a great chunk of territory by force. At the other end of the gallery, you go through a little archway and you end up in Tipu Sultan's hunting tent. Why is that there? Because another member of the family uh, uh, bought this tent after the Tipu Sultan was, was conquered by the East India Company in 1799. His palace burnt, looted, uh, and the actual loot is here in Powys. In actual fact, if you take the whole thing together, there is more Mughal loot, more Mughal artworks and objects in a private house in the Welsh countryside than exists in the National Museum in Delhi or the uh, National Museum in Pakistan or the Great Lahore Museum or the National Museum of Bangladesh or the, the museums in Afghanistan and Iran. Uh, and what's it doing here in a private house owned, although it's looked after by the National Trust, the objects in the museum are still the, the, uh, uh, the property of the, of the family in Powers. What's it doing there? Okay, stop teasing us. <laughs> You're asking the question, what is it doing there and who is the family? So I said that when you enter this gallery, you walk under a picture and that picture is the crucial key to the whole story. And it has a very unhelpful um, caption beneath it. It says, the Shah Alam conveying the gift of the Diwani to Lord Clive. 
Now, in, in Britain and in England, there are very few people that would understand what that means, the gift of the Diwali. It sounds like a nice Diwali present or yeah. sort of Christmas or a birthday. You know, what, and, and the picture shows a big court scene with lots of nobles. On the right are the Indians, the Mughals. On the left are uh, the Brits and mm. the gentlemen of the East India Company. In particular, there are two men at the front uh, surrounding the Mughal emperor who's dressed dressed in cloth so of gold. So cloth of gold and you, you've got all of his retinue behind him also very finely dressed, looking incredibly serious and grave. Although it's notable that the man who is the most richly dressed of them all has his head bowed. Almost, it looks like in supplication. Everybody, the British side, their heads are up. So they're sort of the, the bewigged gentlemen in their crimson coats and their gold brocade. And they are very much looking up, straight-backed, ramrodded. And the Indian, who is clearly in this picture, even if you didn't know the caption, is a potentate. His head is, is bowed. And, well, it might be bad because the potentate, who is Shah Alam, who is the Mughal emperor, whose ancestors... Uh, ruled over not just all of India, but Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Afghanistan. Uh, he has just been humbled in battle, defeated by the armies of the East India Company at the Battle of Buxar in 1765. And he has just been forced to hand over, and you can see in the picture, he's handing over a document to mm. a man in a red coat. That coat is Robert Clive. Uh, Clive called, of India. Sometimes so called many. Clive of yeah, India, yeah. who to this day yeah. stands outside the Foreign Office and behind... Downing Street. By the way, really irritates Indian diplomats. I had no idea, but we know a few. Do you remember? Um, yeah, they have told us how disgusted they were to have to walk past well, Clive the, of India to get to their office. This is the um, this picture is the reason that people are disgusted because Clive of India was not even the servant of the British government. And this is the crucial point. He was the servant of a company, a corporation, just like, you know, Elon Musk actually works for Tesla himself. Uh, his own company, uh, not uh, for Mr. Biden. He's not. He's not a servant of the American state. He's. A, he, he has his own company now. This is exactly the situation. Of Robert Clive. Robert Clive is not appointed by the government. He's appointed by the East India Company by the directors. And what he's doing in this picture uh, is he's taking control after the battle of the three richest provinces of the Mughal Empire. Now, we should say immediately that the, the, A, the picture's not very good. It's by a guy called Benjamin West, who's not a great painter. The dome in the background, which is this sort of looming palace, actually looks, as, as, as one of the critics said in the, when he was hung in the Royal Academy, more like the dome of St. Paul's right. uh, than, than right. anything you'd like to find in India. And we learn, in fact, that Benjamin West had never been to India. Mm. And everything about this picture is actually a deception because not only had Benjamin West never been to India, uh, but this scene never really took place, at least in the in the way that it's shown here. It actually took place. The the, the important document was transferred uh, and signed in the private tent of Clive after the battle. Uh, he had basically put a gun against the defeated emperor's head and made him sign. And according to one Mughal historian who was there, he said the entire ceremony took place quicker that it would normally take to sell a jackass at a market. Hashtag fake news, <laughs> fake as well news. as with that dome, hashtag fake views. I mean, this is a scandal upon scandal. So it is. And so it's a completely deceptive itch. And then, and then you know, to, to um, add insult to injury, uh, the caption, as we said, is conveying the gift of the mm. Diwani to Lord Clive. That's now, what's, like... what's the Diwani, first of all? We have to say, <laughs> what is the Diwani? So the Diwani is, is, is basically the right to run the Diwan, which is the treasury uh, or, the, or, the, or the administration. 
And what it means is that this private company, the East India Company, is being given the right to run the finances of three Indian provinces. Now, those provinces, Bengal, Bihar, and Orissa, were in the 18th century, quite simply, the richest place on earth. The looms of those three provinces, of which there were about one million, were churning out a great deal of the revenue, which meant that Mughal India was creating very nearly a quarter of the world's GDP, while Britain is just just creating 1.8%. This is because India had the great textile industry of its day. You know, what would move in the 19th century, partly because of the events kicked off at this moment by the gift of the Diwani, as it's called, Britain eventually gets control of, uh, of India, and the Indian industries are eventually shut down, and we get the great industries of uh, uh, all the textile manufacturing moves to Lanka, uh, Lancashire and, and, and the north of England well, in Manchester, the 19th century. Yeah, Manchester gets called Cottonopolis. <laughs> Cottonopolis. You know, so it's the, the alternate name for, yeah. That's right. And um, But this is the moment, before that episode, this is the moment when an English company first gets its hands on this incredibly rich territory. And it's done it in two stages. First to be, and we'll, we'll deal with this over the course of the next uh, uh, hour of this podcast, but the uh, the first stage is the Battle of Plassey, the second stage is the Battle of Buxar, and this signing of this document takes place immediately after the second battle, okay. when the East India Company has now basically subdued all opposition in North India. We are get, I think that's... Can we circle back to that? Because I still want to know, and this is a question that Indians ask all the time, how is it that in numbers we outnumbered in strength of arms, we were more powerful together. And yet, a group of adventurers managed to subdue and control a country as vast as India. So can we go right, 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 right back to the first birth whales, the cradle whales of what would become the East India Company? And this really fascinating man who I just love, historian William, called <laughs> if we are going to be called what we do, customer Smythe. Can we start with him? Sure. So the East India Company is a company, a corporation. And like any company, it starts up as a startup, effectively. Uh, and uh, the guy who has the idea, the founder of this company, is a man called Customer or Auditor Smythe. So called because he was an auditor, in other words, an accountant, uh, who ended up running the customs um, and ran the customs of London. So he's a he's a kind of Richard Branson of his day or the Vijay Malia of his day. He's a, an entrepreneur who's made a lot of money. His dad was a, a big entrepreneur before him. He's inherited some money, but he's hugely enlarged that. And so when the news comes in the late 1590s, during now this is the year that um, Elizabeth, I suppose, is about 80 years old, an old woman now, everyone's slightly wondering what's going to happen when she dies. Uh, this is also the year, incidentally, that Shakespeare's writing both Hamlet and Julius Caesar, which I saw last night in The Globe. Hmm. And if you had walked from The Globe in 1599 over Southwark Bridge into what was then Moorgate Fields, not a, a grotty tube station in those days, but... Uh, Fields, as the name suggests. And in the middle is a, is a gorgeous black and white Tudor building called the Founders Hall. The customer Smythe hires that for the day. Uh, and he calls all the rich investors, the, the people who he think can invest in, in his venture. And he says, the Dutch have just gone to the East Indies. By the East Indies, he means what we now call Indonesia, mm -hmm. not India initially. Right. And the, this, the early days of the company's aim not at all at India. 
interestingly, but at Indonesia and even beyond the Spice Islands on the edge of Papua New Guinea. And he has the idea that if the Dutch can get there and buy spices, cutting out all the middlemen, cutting out the Arabs, cutting out the Venetians, cutting out the North Europeans, so can the English. And so he, he's, he appeals to their Tudor patriotism. And he calls in a lot of people that we today would call pirates. Because privateers. Point, they're privateers. privateers in those exactly. days, right? Okay. The privateers are people who have been licensed by the state to loot the treasure ships, um, moving gold, silver, and other precious objects from South America to put Spain and Portugal. Again, I mean, you, you, you're so familiar with this, but to somebody who is not, that is an astonishing thing that the state is giving full power to robbers, ostensibly, <laughs> to go and rob. Well, it's, a, it's actually quite a familiar situation because in the immediate run-up to this, England just cut itself off from the continent. <laughs> and in, in this case, uh, uh, not, the, uh, not the, of course, the European community, which hasn't been founded yet, but the Reformation mm. has cut it off from the whole of Southern Europe. And, and countries like Spain and Portugal regard uh, England as a dangerous enemy state. And there's an awful lot of rivalry. Uh, this is just after the Spanish Armada. This is uh, Philip II is just dead. Uh, and uh, there's an awful lot of uh, uh, of dislike of uh, of Catholic Spain and and the uh, the Popish continent, as they see it. But even the Protestants are not necessarily very friendly towards the English. And the Dutch, who are Protestant, uh, who have just broken free from Spain, have made this pioneering visit to the Spice Islands and made a fortune. And, and the reason that the Dutch, again, the reason the Dutch are so very important is because they've discovered that route through the Cape of Good Hope, which makes their, their traffic and their trade so very lucrative. Well, that route had been open for a while. It had been, it had been found, first of all, by Vasco da Gama um, 50 years earlier, and the whole Portuguese empire had come and gone. Uh, and the Dutch, by better, sa uh, better sailing boats, better, better cannon uh, and deeper pockets, frankly, overcome the Portuguese empire and get to uh, be, uh, get to areas at the very edge of the Portuguese inf influence where the spices grow. And what sets off the whole thing is a visit of, of Dutch shippers to London to try and buy up some London shipping in order that they can make more voyages. And customer smile says, hang on, guys. Not we taking our ships. You can't, not taking our, <laughs> our British ships. You come over here uh, and take our ships. Yeah, come yeah. over here and buy our ships. Mm. Um we can do this ourselves. And so mm. this meeting is called, the same year that Julius Caesar and Hamlet first performed in the Globe, oh, yeah. uh, this meeting is called in this black and white Tudor Hall. And we, bizarrely, we have all the documents. Everything from the East India Company is kept right from this first meeting. Okay, and, and, that, and one of the most tantalising documents that, that is, is in this is, is the, the type of people who, who sort of sign in and sign up for this. I mean, privateers, as you say, but, you know, what we would call... M&S shareholders, you know, people from every walk of life. Correct. And, and so the, the document which is in the British Library, which I have a picture of in my book, The Anarchy, shows the first uh, people signing up are, are the grandees, the, the mayor of London who puts in 300 quid. Somebody else puts in 1,000. But on sort of page 20 of this document, you have the people, as you say, the, the, the ordinary... Oh, vintners, people who sell wine. and leather workers. Yeah, saddle makers. Saddle makers. And yeah. they're putting in 10 quid, 5 quid. And... What has happened is that Elizabethan England has invented this new mechanism for doing business. Stock shares, shareholding. Shareholders. Yeah. This is an, an idea which, 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 you know, is invented at this period. Before that, you had guilds. Now, guilds were a bit like this in that, you know, all the wool makers of Suffolk get together, they pool their resources, and they go off and uh, get, cut a deal with the uh, tapestry makers in Holland, for example, mm. or, or, or Belgium. 
but to, to be a member of a guild, you had to be a wool worker and have something to do with the wool industry. And that gave you access to a beautiful hall in a, in a town like Lavenham or Burford or one of these lovely wool churches in, uh, in England. And uh, what's new about the joint stock company, which is an idea first invented in Elizabethan England in 1580 with the founding of the Muscovy Company, uh, the Muscovy Company was aimed at trade with Moscow and Russia. It, it sold furs and this sort of stuff, uh, and, and and goods from the forests of the uh, of the the steppe. Frankly, um, when they found that, they have this new model, and it, and they say, you know, it's not just merchants that can join. Anyone that wants to put in some money can invest it, mm. and they will get a share, a percentage depending on how much they put in. So if they're a huge investor, they get a huge share of the profits. If they're a small investor, they'll get a tiny share. But this idea changes everything because mm. suddenly you have the growth of companies. And these companies, if they're popular, can raise vast sums of money. And if they fail, they fail. And so what happens, interestingly, is that the Elizabethan state outsources a lot of its colonial activity to merchant companies not to the state itself well i mean it cuts overheads you it sort of makes sense if you're an exchequer and you've got other things on your mind like wars um you know or threatening borders you this is the last thing that you want to administer administration is expensive so from this time you get the muscovy company mm. you get the royal africa company which is a slaving company you get the hudson bay company which still exists which which deals with all the, the furs coming in from the northern united states or, or northern america uh, now in canada uh you get um the Rhode Island Company, which which controls Rhode Island, so uh, you get the Virginia Company controlling. So you get all these different areas, which are actually run by merchant corporations and investors. And so the East India Company is 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 part of this, but it's not the first. Can I just ask? I mean, Custer Smythe, uh, what was he like? I mean, you said he was like Branson, and um, sometimes these things rise and fall, particularly these days, corporations on the charisma of the person leading it. What was he like? Do we know what he was like? Well, we have a picture of him, which which shows this sort of you know very uh, Elizabethan guy with a, a a tall like a stovepipe hat, a, a, a goatee beard. Mm. He's a he's a, a, a well to do, new rich, one generation old fortune, um, and he's exactly the sort of man who is rising up at this period, full of entrepreneurial energy. Quite ruthless. So Again, nu- think, nouveau think, riche. I mean, we're talking nouveau riche. Yeah, so I mean, think of all those yeah. characters in, in okay. Shakespeare plays from this period right. who, who end up, you know, being cast away on islands in like the Tempest. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah. So he's 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 a London businessman. He's connected with the with the privateers, and he gathers these guys into this meeting and says, "Invest in my company. We'll get some spices." And they do that. So he says, "Come and invest in my company," and and they do. And they do. And as I say, we have this document which shows the, mm. the large sum of money which which is raised. Through this public meeting, and we even have the a description of the meeting. The young Richard Hacklett, who who will go on to write wonderful travellers' accounts and compile the accounts of other travellers, is hired to to be the kind of notary, keeping the the records and 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 writing the history. They're aware that they're doing something very historic, so they employ a best-selling uh, non-fiction writer to, uh, to to be their own biographer right from the beginning. And there's a great awareness that this is an important moment. But I mean, it's, but it's not a it's not a guarantee that this is going to work. No, I mean, and in fact, it, you know, there are two very good reasons for 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 wondering whether this is a a, a good way to spend your money. Um, first of all, the man they hire to sail the first voyage is a man called Sir James Lancaster, and he's just come back from 
a disastrous voyage in the same area. He's he's employed because he's the only man that's actually sailed there, but he didn't sail back because he sank his ship <laughs> and all his crew got eaten by cannibals. Okay, this is not a successful <laughs> uh, first choice. And applicant. yet, you know, he's the only guy that does oh, this. So okay. his first thing, you know, you know in, the, in the weeks after the meeting, they've got their cash, they gather it from their shareholders. We even have notes saying, you know, X and Y hasn't paid up yet and, uh, and they start getting kind of legal notices because they promised such and such yeah, yeah. money and they haven't delivered it. Uh, but they go out and they go to Deptford to look for a ship. And the first ship they find is a creaky old hulk called the Mayflower. The Mayflower. The Mayflower. The Mayflower. The Mayflower. Which they reject because it, they think it's not seaworthy. Uh, and obviously that has its own history going in a different direction. Right. A little bit no, nobody, tells <laughs> nobody tells one, the pilgrims. One presumes. Uh-huh. But instead they buy a pirate ship. And I'm not making this up. It's, it's called the Scourge of Malice. It sounds like Johnny Depp's flagship so, from uh, Pirates of the I mean, it, it does seem a little obvious for pr- privateers or pirates to be on this but they don't keep the name because the name is not a good name for a serious company is it exactly so being good uh, again at pr again looking at posterity they change the name immediately from the scourge of malice to the red dragon as if it's a nice sort of country pub in the welsh countryside (laughs) next to powys castle right and as you say you know there's no guarantee this will work and initially it doesn't they set sail and they get becalmed in the channel by a freak uh freak heat wave and there's no um, there's no breeze so, so they just I, so sit on, it, in the channel and yeah. people have picnics on the so, channel and the they, are they cliffs. laughing at them are they literally pointing and laughing saying ha ha you thought you can't, can't even, even get, get past Cali. the car park <laughs> that's very funny but the breeze picks up eventually and off they sail and to their own surprise they round the Cape of Good Hope they actually uh, apparently uh, perform a Shakespeare play on the on the ship that's marvellous. Uh, which is wonderful. What are the Dutch doing as they're going through their, their sea lanes? I mean, are they just, do they know? Do they allow it? Or is it just they're lucky because Lancaster's just lucky this time? Well, I mean, I didn't have to ask permission from anyone. And this is armed uh, armed commerce from the very beginning. The charter that they wring out of the Elizabethan court uh, allows them to wage war explicitly. So and, they'll fight and, their way through if they have to. And they to. employ mm. people, you know, with cannon and they employ archers and they employ all sorts to to protect them. So they uh, realise that, you know, as as all commerce is at this point, that it's a risk uh, and they've got to take precautions. And they get eventually to the East Indies, by which we would say Java, Indonesia. And just as they're about to land, they see a Portuguese caravel coming in the opposite direction. And as there are literally a bunch of ex-pirates, uh, they just land on the Portuguese ship and transfer its contents to their own hold and sail home again. Okay, so this is not, <laughs> so not only does this require no effort, but also no money. So they come back with the you know the kaching in their pockets, but and also laden with goods. Laden with goods, they 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 take an entire cargo of nutmeg and spices and they sell it for one million. Let's take a break here and we'll be back after this break with what happens (laughs) to the pirates (laughs) when they come back with their million pounds. You're listening to Empire with me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Dalrymple. You always leave this very pregnant pause as if you've forgotten what your name is. Uh, it is William Dalrymple. I can Who, me? Who, me? The world's authority on the East India Company. Yes, you. And we left this story with um, 
John Lancaster, who does not have the most... Sir James, Sir James Lancaster. Lancaster. John to his friends. No, it's not. Sir James <laughs> Lancaster, uh, who has not the most distinguished record at sea, who has lost uh, <laughs> a flotilla and many of his crew have been eaten on a previous voyage. But this time lucks out royally or bigly, as some may say in America, <laughs> because instead of having to spend the hard invested cash of all the shareholders in, in this nascent East India company, has bumped into a Portuguese ship and said, I will have that, <laughs> takes home. everything and goes home. Yep, that is literally it. And that's very much the spirit of the time. And this, you know, after the after the, the Brits have, have have fallen out with everybody in Europe again, uh, they, they, they have to take what they can get. And so... There begins a very tricky 30 years when they are competing against the Dutch. Now, the Dutch were the first in. The Dutch, a new nation, have fantastic financial instruments. They are brilliant financiers, which is the Tudors are not yet. Right. They're, they're, they're beginners at this. And because the Dutch have got deeper pockets and because they've got better ships and better sea captains than Sir James Lancaster, uh, by 1630, 30 years in, the Brits basically lost the competition. Uh, the, the real success story in the spice trade is now the Dutch. And there's a series of disasters, the Amboina Massacre being one, when the whole of Brits are captured and tortured by the Dutch. And eventually a treaty is signed. And as a sop, as a sort of a consolation prize to the English, they are given a muddy island in the Hudson River, the other side of the road, called Manhattan. Oh, I've heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> so that, of course, turns out to be a rather good investment yeah. in the uh, in the long term. But in the short term, this is rather a humiliation. And rather like a startup, which has gone awry. And, you know, people, investors haven't quite got their return, but they're not giving up yet because, you know, they can see there's, there's, there's still potential. Hmm. The business model is basically re rejigged in around 1630, 1640. And what they decide to do is, is basically forget the spice trade, leave that to the Dutch. And I think already there are signs that the great days of the spice trade have passed, that the prices of spices are going. So the English are not completely um, uh, heartbroken to, to, to no, hand No, they're canny. They, they, they're canny. They, they know that's not a thing to fight over. And what they realise is that the, 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 new, the new trade... The, the really exciting trade is textiles. So when we're talking about textiles coming, you know, from, from Bengal and you say, you know, th this was the, the majority uh, of textiles were coming from Bengal at this time. What kind of textiles are we talking about? So initially, um, the big Mughal port is Surat, which is in Gujarat. And Gujarat is the centre of the cotton trade. Uh, by which, and I cotton to us is very ordinary. I'm, I'm wearing a, a simple cotton white shirt at the moment, and it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's unremarkable and cheap. But at the time, it was considered a luxury product because it's, it, it's very soft on the skin. You wear it well, darling. But thank you so much. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this was an, uh, an ancient export of India. It was something uh, at the time of the Romans, mm. uh, Gujarati cotton was as valuable as silk. Gosh. Um, and, you know, as, as with spices, you know, you go mm. to, you go to Waitrose or, or Sainsbury's and, or, Tesco's or little and buy buy pepper now without thinking about it and uh, it's not a it's not a luxury product because the, the, the sheer quantity the supplies meant that the that the price has sunk right down right the same is slightly true of cotton that, that what is was a luxury uh is now something which is uh, uh unremarkable what were people wearing before cotton well the brits are wearing wool uh which obviously is not suitable for the uh for the tropics uh and so they buy 
the cotton from Gujarat, and then they begin to get involved in all the incredibly more exotic and exciting textiles being produced in Bengal. Uh, muslin, which is incredibly fine, often mm. see-through. Uh, silks, uh, wonderful embroideries, uh, things called kalamkaris, which are painted, and you hang them on your Tudor four-poster bed. And this is a very, very good moment to be in the textile trade. And it's also, I don't think this was particularly planned because, you know, there's no question that the East India Company just lost battles against the Dutch. But by moving from the spice trade to the textile trade and moving from a focus on Indonesia to India, both these decisions are very canny in the, in well, the long run. I mean, it means you have the whole field to yourself. You have the whole field to yourself. Well, not quite the whole field because there are still a few Portuguese uh, enclaves like Goa. Uh, uh, and the East India Company has a few dust-offs with the with, a, with, with Portuguese, the Portuguese right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but nonetheless, that they're in early. And the important point is that the Mughals, who now run India, they've come down from what was Uzbekistan. They've taken over uh, the north and the middle of India. And by 1640, Shah, Shah Jahan, who builds the Taj Mahal, is on the uh, on the throne. And the Mughal Empire is incredibly rich and incredibly. Mm. Uh, uh, incredibly willing to do trade. But as these guys are Central Asian nomads, they're not interested particularly in the sea. And there's no, uh, I mean, there's a small, there's a few ships, but there's no navy as such uh, that the moguls control. Can I Can I just, um, I'm just draw, draw your attention, everyone's attention to, you know, you just said, you know, actually the, the moguls were so rich that... It, it does not matter. The British are a, a kind of a blip. There is, I mean, a, a later um, picture, which is really informative. This is this is Jahangir as the millennial sultan, preferring the company of Sufis. It's it's by Bichir, the the painter. Bichir. Uh, and it is it's a remarkable thing. So you've got Jahangir sort of with a great golden disc behind him, looking resplendent and important. And he's Putties floating above him. Yeah, and he's he's um, he's handing over a, a one would presume a religious text to a Sufi scholar, I guess. But in the left hand corner <laughs> is a teeny tiny. James the First. James the First looking remarkably looking, pissed off <laughs> at the fact that Jahangir prefers the Sufi to him. Yeah. And he's got this sort of sour expression on his face. And he's, and he's very, really not very amused. But also uh, not important. I mean, that's, so this is the scale of what, what India regarded Britain as at and the time. And the person below him is, is the painter, Bichita. Um, his own yeah. self-portrait. And, and an artist in the Mughal court, while the, 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 the Mughals were obsessed with art, the status of artists was very low. So it's like, like putting a picture of, I don't know, um, President Macron next to a dustbin man. Right. Uh, I mean, he's, uh, it, 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 this is not a, you know, he's not, he's been given the least honourable position. I mean, is it, is it, is it designed to be a pictorial insult or is it, is it, is it just, this is just how they saw it? That's just how they saw it. Uh, mm. and, and what has happened is that there's a picture of James I sitting there because it's been given by one of the ambassadors and it's, it's an exciting object and the Mughal artist has copied it and shoved it above his own picture in the corner. I said it's a remarkable uh, picture. Yeah, so that's also in your book. But that again is very, yeah. that again is, is, is very telling because... Mm. The Brits are from this, you know, I mean, the Emperor Akbar talks about uh, uh, the, the Northerners as being like animals. I mean, these people are regarded as semi-savage. The Brits. The Brits and all the other North Europeans. Okay, so, right, okay. So we've got the British, apart from the old skirmish around Again, with the, the, with English, the Portuguese. The because, English. Because we're pre, I beg your pardon. Yeah. The English, um, but just the Portuguese sort of snipping away at their heels. But otherwise, they've, they've pretty much got a clear run. So from the, from the 1630s on, mm. the Brits 
have a very good chance of taking the Indian textile market and exporting it around the, uh, the globe. And they do this very successfully. So that by the early 18th century, you have de-industrialization as far as Mexico, um, uh, because there's so much cheap Indian cotton of a high quality and very low cost being exported by the Brits to, to the new world. Are they, are they exporting stuff that's already being made or are they causing more stuff to be made? They are buying piece cotton, as it's called, which in other words, bolts, rolls right. of, of raw material. Uh, they're, not, they're not, in most cases... Commissioning uh, anything. Commissioning sort of nice clothes. No, that, it's, it's, it's the raw material. And they're shipping it not just to Britain, but all over the world. And, you know, there's, when you go to, for example, lovely Renaissance palaces in Italy on your summer holidays, you often see on the walls um, mogul kalamkaris, uh, which are uh, presumably got there via the East India Company. They're beautiful decorative items. Okay, so so this is lovely. I mean, you know, England gets its cotton and um, the weavers get their money and they all lived happily ever after. Well, for a long time they do. Mm-hmm. And both the moguls and the East India Company prosper spectacularly at this period. And everything goes quite well until Aurangzeb, who is this uh, Mughal emperor who messes everything up. He, he takes too much of the Deccan. He overexpands too fast to the south. And also he irritates all the Hindus by reimposing the jizya. A tax for non-believers. So if you worship your own god and it's not an, an Islamic god, you pay a tax. And basically since the time of Akbar, the, the Mughal Empire had been a very successful collaborative mm. deal between the, the Rajput armies, who are Hindu, who are, are, are defeated in battle, but then rather than being punished or being looted, they are brought into the Mughal fold and become the spearhead of Mughal armies. So for quite a lot of the next um, century, you find Hindu-Mughal armies attacking minor Muslim sultans halfway down India in, in the Deccan. So Ahmednagar, Bijapur, Golconda, all these little sultanates are attacked by Hindu armies working for the Mughals. So it's the opposite in the sense of what you'd expect, which is why today, when, one, for example, one goes to Rajasthan, if you go to the town of Bikaner, there's a wonderful library where you find the best Deccani manuscripts, which have been looted at this period from the middle of India. I'll come back to us. Aurangzeb is messing things up. Aurangzeb is messing things up. And when he dies in 1707, the empire begins to fall. And this, again, was, was something we talked about in an earlier podcast. The, the Jats, the Sikhs and the Marathas are rising up. Any of them could have taken the Mughals out. But in the end, it's this odd character from out of, out of town, mm. Nadir Shah of Persia, comes in comes to Delhi, loots everything, takes Cartloads the Kohnoor and, Kono. Kono and among, yeah. among, among 8,000 wagons of other stuff. Yeah. And once he's taken all the finance from the imperial treasury, the Mughal Empire disintegrates, where right. previously you'd had a single unitary state, beautifully administered uh, by, uh, by, by local uh, governors in every corner of the empire over what's now four different countries. Um, n- suddenly... Every town is semi-independent. Jodhpur, Jaipur, mm. Udaipur, Tanjore, Hyderabad. You can't pay the soldiers. You can't pay the administrations. No one's going to work for you. The whole thing falls apart. Yeah. And in that churning, if you like, in, in that extraordinary transformation of India from a massive empire to tiny self-governing states jostling up against each other, two European corporations make merry. One is the East India Company, based in Calcutta, Madras, and Bombay. But there's a rival French company called the Compagnie des Andes, which is based in Pondicherry and Chandanagar. And they have shadow factories 
opposite the English ones in almost every place. And, what, and what's the relationship? I mean, is, competition is one thing, but w- did it get violent between the two? So it, it's very, it is, it's, it's very hostile. And the whole of the 18th century, uh, there's a there's a global conflict between France and England, which manifests itself in first of all the Austrian succession, then eventually the Seven Years' War. Uh, and and these are global conflicts. The British fight the French in in Lake Huron and in the northern United States, in Canada. Remember that last of the Mohican stuff with Daniel Day-Lewis leaping over uh, waterfalls and all that sort of stuff in the Caribbean, as far away as the Philippines. But also, mm. you know, the Jacobite Rebellion, arming the Irish, all this sort of stuff is going on. In the middle of all this, the English and the French are fighting it out. And Robert Clive, as a young man, does a whole series of skirmishes called the Carnatic Wars. Wait, wait, wait. Before you go into the Carnatic Wars, let us, first of all, just explain who Robert Clive actually was. Because, you know, in in my mind and in my schooling, we only heard of Clive of India as if he was some noble who had sort of beamed down into the history book. But he was quite different, wasn't he? Sure. So Robert Clive is exactly the sort of guy who joins the East India Company at this period. He is... From a sort of poshish background, he's a local squire's son. Social aspirations, but not much money. And a lot of these people are being signed up by the East India Company uh, because it's not a bad way of making a living at this period. And if you are the sort of uh, minor gentry that has high social aspirations but simply doesn't have the money to support it anymore, to put one of your kids out to the East India Company is a good option. It's like, it's like you know, like one son sometimes goes into the priesthood if you don't know what to do with it. But okay, so Robert... But this is more like, yeah. I suppose, putting one son into Goldman Sachs. Okay, but, but he is by nature a delinquent. He is indeed a delinquent. And there is a whole lot of letters from his uncle which survive, which have him being the village village bully he he has protection rackets against village shopkeepers in Shropshire. He breaks the windows of shopkeepers who don't pay up. He even floods somebody's shop just to, just out of spite. So he's this sort of unruly adolescent who is sent off by his uncle eventually to, to India, where he's signed up as an accountant. And of course, being an unruly delinquent, he hates it. Mm. And twice he tries to shoot himself, and twice, for various reasons, he fails. But he regards this as sort of almost as a sort of divine... Uh, mandate that he's clearly been spared for great things. And so when war breaks out between France and England, he signs up to become a soldier. And this turns out, unlike a candidacy, to be something that he's very Right up his street. Right up his street. And he's not a professional soldier. He's not in the British Army, but he takes to it like a duck to water. And he's trained up by various veterans of Culloden uh, who have now come out to South India. And together... Clive and some of his mates basically outwit the French company. French company is hobbled because it's very much state run. Uh, guys that can't quite make it at court in Versailles, a, a slight losers sent out. And unlike the British company, which is a sort of libertarian, thrusting, well, the hungry ones. Ruthless, hungry, ruthless, yeah. ambitious young men, you get a lot of sort of dim aristocrats the, in the, the French The d- dilettantes who nobody d- knows yeah. what to do with. Uh-huh. And they also haven't got much freedom of movement. Everything has to go through Versailles. They don't get an answer from the king because he's busy, do, you know, busy with his mistresses and, and all that sort of stuff. So the arrival of Clive coincides with the moment that the English East India Company clearly gets a, an upper hand over the French. And Clive makes his first fortune uh, at this point, comes back to England and goes into Parliament. And almost immediately, there's a scandal over the fact that he's bribed everyone. And 
quite soon, having given some money to his dad and bought some land, he finds his coffers, which he thought would be enough to retire on, in fact, are exhausted within three or four years. So he signs up at exactly the moment when England and France are heading to war again. And this is going to be the conflict in, uh, that will finally break out in 1756 to 7, um, that the Americans call the French and Indian Wars, um, which we in Britain call the Seven Years' War. Right. Again, a global conflict between Britain and France in all their different colonies and territories. And rather like the Iraq War a few years ago, everything is set off by a false piece of intelligence. A, a document is delivered to the East India Company saying that uh, we've just seen that the French are loading up an enormous flotilla in their, uh, in their main base, Port Lorient, uh, and it's clearly going off to Bengal and just set sail. And there's descriptions of the number of cannon, the number of warships that has, have gone. The document is not completely wrong in that there was a big French retailer, but they've got the destination wrong. In fact, it's heading to Canada. Oh. And so when the Brits send off a, a rival fleet, they get the, the, the company goes to the British Navy and says, you know, you've got to protect our interests. We're about to be wiped off the face of Bengal. Uh, the Royal Navy produces some ships. Clive is recruited on the company side. And so you have a, a joint sort of uh, Royal Navy and Marine and East India Company expedition. But they arrive in Madras to find there's no French. There's no opposition at all because they've all gone off to Canada. And they've sailed halfway around the world. They've taken six months and there's no one there. What the hell do they do? Clive, well, you know, who might, might as well fire. <laughs> Clive, who yeah, yeah. Very nearly um, sort of, you know, career almost ended at this point, having wow. pressed on this expedition is saved by a complete fluke. Just at the same time as he's arriving, to the north in Calcutta, a new governor of Bengal is called Siraj Adala, and he is another sort of angry punk. Uh, he's young, he's, he's already fallen out with everybody. Uh, he's, uh, he's the beloved nephew of, of a man called Ali Verdi Khan, who'd governed Bengal for years very well. But he has none of Ali Verdi Khan's tact, diplomacy, or sense of state. He's famous for um, sinking pleasure boats just to watch the, have the fun of watching people drown. He's a serial seducer of women who takes women and walls them up if they... If he they, sounds if, like a total scumbag. He's a total scumbag. Mm. And he attacks Calcutta on the very uh, justified grounds that the Brits have been rebuilding the fortifications of Calcutta without his permission. He's the governor. They have to ask if they're going to fortify that. Planning house. permission, if planning you will. Yeah. Exactly. It's yeah. exactly. It's a planning permission dispute. Mm -hmm. And um, if he thinks that they must be arming it against him because a lot of bankers have recently arrived at Calcutta uh, and the Brits are resisting them paying any taxes to Siraj Adala. In fact, of course, they are arming against the French because they've been given this intelligence and, and the documents survive in yeah, the there's National an entire archives. flotilla on their way. There's yeah. a flotilla on their mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. So... When news arrives that Siraj Dalla has attacked Calcutta and put many people into a guardhouse where they died in, uh, of, of heat and uh, hysteria in, in something called the Black Hole of Calcutta in 1756, when news comes that the city has fallen and there's been this, this apparent abuse of, of the survivors, Clive suddenly has a job. He's sent north and he retakes Calcutta. Can we just on the black hole of Calcutta? Because I mean, that, that is something that did come up when I was at school. And uh, it was hundreds of people were forced into this inhumane, oxygenless hole in the ground. 
and left to die, men, women and children. It's a very pitiful story. Is that what happened? Is that the truth of it? Well, it's it's a hugely disputed bit of history. Um, that many people died is, is clear, but the numbers seem to have been hugely exaggerated. What happened was that when the Brits lost Calcutta, a lot of them got very drunk and ran amok, and the various people were uh, shot guards. So again, Sir Rajadala's troops quite reasonably said, we can't have this lot just running loose uh, and taking pot shots at us. So they locked them in a guard room. But they lock probably about 60 people in this guard room. It's a small and, space, isn't and it? And about 30 mm. people come out alive. Mm. So and the, the, my understanding, having looked at the documents and studied this, is that something happened, that there was definitely uh, some extremely uh, unfortunate and avoidable deaths, but it wasn't a sort of dastardly plot to kill them all. Mm. Uh, the Brits misbehaved, and this was an attempt to keep unruly prisoners under lock and key and, until somewhere better was found for them. Hmm. I mean, Sir Roger Dalla is not somebody we want to stand up for either. I mean, he, no. you know, he's, he, he's quite capable of doing uh, <laughs> yep. atrocities, but the Black Hole of Calcutta is, sound like, is not It's not, not a premeditated such. sort of... Okay, all right. So but there's, this, by the time it's arrived in Madras, this story is already... And it's given a mandate, isn't it? Yeah. It gives a mandate and a reason and an honourability to what follows. So the idea is that Clive is going to liberate this captured city. Mm. He's going to vindicate British honour. And he's going to teach these savages who've killed our poor women and children a lesson. And he's got a big Royal Navy flotilla with some Marines. He's taken on the East India Company's own um, nascent mercenary army, who are the sepoys, who he's trained up a bit. And there's not many of them, incidentally, of the sepoys at this point. There's only a few thousand. Um, and they're really just jumped up security guards, given a few muskets. Um, and... He arrives in Bengal and he recaptures Calcutta without really much opposition. It's not a, a very difficult task given the armaments that he has. And he then gets the news that the French uh, have declared war on England and the Seven Year War has begun. So he then takes a second town, which is Chandanagar, the French settlement. And that is much more of a conflict. There's an enormous uh, uh, sea battle, in fact, or, or, or using naval ships on the Hooghly River. And uh, a lot of people are killed on both sides. And, and at this point, having taken not just Calcutta, but the French headquarters at Chandanagar, Clive writes to his dad that he's heading home and that his name is made and he should be now uh, again... Set up for life. Set up for life. Yeah. So just as Clive is heading back to Madras and planning to um, you know, cash in his chips and uh, another nice little victory, a letter arrives that changes everything. And the letter is from a man called the Jugget Set, the banker to the world. And the Jugget Sets are like the Rothschilds of 19th century Europe. They are these uh, incredibly rich, very political bankers. Mm. They've invented a very clever system of transferring funds around India at a time of disruption. In the old days, the tax from Bengal, which kept the whole thing going, because this was the rich area of, of India, would be put onto a wagon, uh, a, a troop of soldiers would go with it, and it would literally march overland up the up the Ganges to Delhi. Now, with with war bands roaming around, that's no longer a, a possibility. And the Jugget Sets come up with this credit idea that basically you pay the tax into our office in Calcutta, and we will give you a chit, and you can withdraw it in our office in Delhi. It's like it's, it's such a it feels like such a modern concept, it's a you modern know, sort of concept. going into it's a credit. Federal Express and saying right. Send it, send it over, money order. But they, mm. it's exactly that. But they, they, they take 10 to 
of the, of the tax load. And given that this is, you know, the main source of money for the Mughal Empire, they make a fortune very, very quickly, become the richest people in Asia. Uh, and, and according to one Mughal source, money flows into the coffers of the Jagat sets like the Ganges flows into the sea. Yeah. And so these guys write, reach out to Clive and say, we've seen that you've just defeated uh, Sirajadara and taken back Calcutta. We've got a proposal for you. We think Sirajadara is a psycho. He has threatened us. He's forced us to give him loans. He's threatened to circumcise us and make us Muslims. And we're not standing for this. What we propose is that you attack Sirajadara at his capital in Mushidabad. We will pay off his generals so they don't fight. And for that service, sir, we will pay you personally one million pounds and we will pay the company another million pounds. So what does what does that mean in those days? What is one? I mean, it sounds like a one million pounds. <laughs> what, what does it actually mean it in those days? It means that Clive becomes the richest self-made man in Europe wow. overnight. It's wow. a colossal offer. And he has no authority to do this. He's been sent to fight the French, which he's done. Uh, but he takes this and and no one is, is, is going to say no to this kind of money. It's outrageous sums of money. No one's ever been offered this. And the fact that the company's been offered a million too means that Clive thinks that he can get away with it. So he goes north and for a week there's a terrible silence and he wonders whether he's falling into a trap because there's no letters reaching him. But eventually he, he brazens it out and they meet at the battlefield of Palashi. Uh, known in English textbooks as Palashi. Palashi is actually yeah. a type of tree. A palash tree is this gorgeous mm. orange tree that produces these wonderful bright blossoms in April. Uh, but anyway, there's, a, there's mango groves there. Clive camps for the night. In the morning, he finds the Mughal army has encircled him. And there's a terrible moment when it looks like he's he bitten off more. It's a trap. He's bitten yeah. off more than he can chew. Yeah. Uh, and... Then the fire from this army, supported by, incidentally, a, a, a French contingent that, that are very keen to wipe out the English, starts. And uh, Clive's army has to hide. They, cli- they hide on the banks of the river. They hide in the mango groves. And it looks like they're going to have to leg it back to Calcutta at night as the only possible option. But at the vital moment, a monsoon storm breaks and there's a terrific downpour. And while the British remember to cover their gunpowder with tarpaulins, the Mughals don't. You are joking. Literally, this crucial that one, this one basic, accident, that basic thing. Could have turned history. Totally That's does turn history. So when the Mughal cavalry think that the same must have happened to the English and the English cannon are out of, uh, out of uh, commission, immediately the, the monsoon storm ends, the cavalry, the, the Mughal cavalry the charge forward, forward mm. and they're met by a coruscating enormous volley from the English cannon, killing all the leaders of the cavalry. And that's it. And that's the end of Plassey. That is the Battle of Plassey. At that point, Mir Jaffa, who is the general in the pay of the Jagat sets as well, takes his half of the army and marches off the battlefield. Sirajadaula realises that he's been betrayed, flees off. He is eventually captured, hacked to bits, and his mutilated body is paraded on the back of a donkey through Mushidabad. The next day... Clive walks into Mashidabad with the Jagat says, and literally helps himself to everything in the treasury. He stuffs his pockets. And years later, when he's called before Parliament, rather like sort of Boris Johnson, he brazens it out and says, my lords, there was a prostrate city at my feet. The bankers waited on my pleasure. My lords, I was astonished at my own moderation. Oh, for heaven's sake. And everyone laughs and he's off the And hook. there's, oh, 
Oh, Clive. <laughs> oh, Clive. But that explains where we started. Paris Castle stuck. Not quite. Not oh, quite. No? No, no, nearly. So what happens then is that Clive gets his million. And eight years later, all the people that he has put into power as puppets again rise up against the English because the English have, have behaved so incredibly badly and basically you know, killed the goose that was laying the golden egg. In just eight years, they lay waste to Bengal by asset stripping it. And there is another big uh, act of resistance, and not just the Nawab of Bengal this time, who's now called Mir Qasim, a man actually put in by, the, by Clive, but uh, also the Nawab of, uh, of Avad, which is basically Uttar Pradesh, who's called Shuja Udala, and the Mughal emperor himself, Shah Alam, all meet at the Battle of Buxar. And they take on uh, the East India Company. But again, the company has used the money that it's gathered to enormously increase the size of its sepoy army. And it's bought an enormous number of sepoys. And there are now 40,000 trained up sepoys, trained in the latest European techniques of warfare. Horse artillery, 18th century ballistics, muskets, bayonets. And it's a hard-fought battle, but the East India Company's army defeats all three of these armies massed together. And this is the moment when Clive returns to India and makes Shah Alam sign the Diwani. And suddenly you find that the richest provinces of India, the three richest provinces, Bengal, Bihar, and Orissa, are signed over not to the British government, not to the British army, but to a private corporation, the East India Company. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you tell a story. <laughs> and it's not, it's not even the end, is it? It's just the, the end of the beginning. This is now the moment that the company moves from being a trading organisation to suddenly it's an imperial territorial power. And if you want to know more about that, do listen to the next podcast. That's all from me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Dalrymple. So if you enjoyed that, the second episode of Empire with Willie and Anita is out right now. You can find the link in the episode description or just search Empire Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.